Jeremy. But that was really nice, wasn't it? Yeah. So, Phil, thanks so much for tuning our minds to that song and how convicting that was, uh, that Fanny Crosby wrote that as a blind person. But I really do appreciate the, uh, the singing and the worship and the prayer. Thank you for the update, Debbie. It is really great to hear from Vicki and Glenn Neergarter, dear family in our congregation. Their daughter, Taylor, has just had some tragic health issues happen all at once. It's been very, very traumatic. We've had a prayer night where we just dedicated a time for prayer. And, and I, I got to say, uh, you know, we got to look for the little miracles here and there, right? And, and the situation with Taylor was so bad and it was so deep and it was so dark for, you know, it was just like, it seemed like day after day, it went, went on for several weeks where it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And Glenn texted me at one of the lowest points, said, you know, it, it, I, I cannot take another round of bad news. He literally, he said, every doctor that came in and said, we've never seen something like this happen. This has never happened before. He said it just happened again and again. And he got to the point where he had no faith. He was done. He, he couldn't take another bit of bad news. He emailed us saying, send me scriptures, please. I mean, he sent a text. We got together that very night, called an emergency prayer meeting. Thank you for everyone that came. We prayed for about an hour uh, and, and sang, and then we all texted scriptures to Glenn and Vicki that we could think of to encourage them because they're down at Children's Hospital in L.A., and, and we really can't do much down there, but we can, we can pray. Yeah. And it's amazing what God can do when we pray. Uh, Glenn told me, I talked to him the next day, and we got done around 10 o'clock praying. At that time, Taylor was in a surgery, exploratory surgery. They were trying to find what is going wrong, and uh, Glenn said it was sometime after 10 uh, shortly after 10, the doctors came out, and it was the first time they've gotten good news in this whole ordeal. And listen, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't have a way of seeing what's going on uh, behind the scenes, but I, I believe that God answers prayer. And, you know, a lot of people have been praying, and we had that dedicated prayer time, and, and I, I, I got to tell you, thank you for your faith and for your commitment to believing that God uh, does exist and he does answer prayers. And I'm certainly uh, assured right now that things are going in a much better direction. We're so grateful for that. She's not out of the woods, but it's, it's been better news since then. And so uh, I just want to say thank you as a church uh, for your time and prayer and your love for the, the Near Garter family. You know, uh, we're, we're, uh, last week I, I came up here, and uh, by the way, I'm Joe Collins, if you don't know me, and, and uh, last week I, I uh, opened up with a joke, and my dad had two favorite jokes that he loved to tell, and, uh, and the first one, and I didn't say they were funny jokes, they, you know, he liked to tell them, and, and, and the first joke was about an elephant, and why do elephants paint their toenails red, and, and he would say, because they like to hide in cherry trees, and then he would say, have you ever seen an elephant in a cherry tree, and of course he would say no, and he'd go, well, they hide well, and, and he just got a kick out of that joke, he thought it was hilarious, well, his other second, or his, his other favorite joke that he used to tell was something like this, do you know why they put fences around cemeteries, because people are dying to get in, <laughs> like I said, I don't, I don't know, my dad wasn't a great comedian, but he had two jokes, and he loved to tell them, and so I love to tell them whenever I get the chance. Uh, the series title that we're a part of right now is called The Elephant in the Room. The elephant represents an obvious truth that's going unaddressed. And uh, two weeks ago when we started the series, we started off in the kitchen. We're, we're being very literal about the rooms. We started off in the kitchen. And, you know, we had a little table set up with, 
that tried to look like a kitchen. The hotel's been real, real gracious to me. I, I get props from them. We're going to go figure out how many rooms we can make props for uh, with the stuff that the hotel has here. But, but uh, there in the kitchen, we discovered that the elephant that's in the middle of the kitchen is pop culture. It's, it's constantly trying to force feed us its message, you know, its values, its, its social norms, etc. And, and, uh, and we, we realize that, uh, you know, we don't often talk about that, but, but it's there. It exists, and we have to be aware of, of pop culture and its influence on us. The second room we went to last week, we left the kitchen, and we went right to the bedroom. My two favorite rooms, the kitchen and the bedroom. And so we went right into the bedroom, and there in the bedroom, we, we, we came to realize that the elephant that's there is this, this concept that all faiths are equal. It's represented by this, this coexist slash tolerance movement that we hear so much about. We see it on bumper stickers, etc. And the basic premise of that, of that elephant is that all faiths are equal. But, but that's just not true. That's a big, fat elephant sitting in the middle of the room that we're not talking about. The reality is all faiths are not equal. Well, today we're going to leave uh, the kitchen and, and, and the bedroom behind, and we're now going to go to the best representation, I gotta, can't walk away from the mic, the best representation of a home office. So I have a desk here and a chair. I even have a water bottle, and I, I got to leave my coffee there. So that's awesome, because now I can drink my coffee. But uh, there's a paper and pencil. But this is, this is the home office. And so that's the room we're going to talk about today. And to give you a little background on the history of the home office, who knew there's a history to the home office? The concept of working from home is not a modern concept. In fact, historically, most people worked from home, whether it was farmers or artisans or craftsmen, even doctors, whatever, you know, whatever thing you did, it was often done out of the home. Now, the Industrial Revolution, compulsory education, changed a lot about how society went to work. Not only did dad get up and go to work, but more increasingly mom had to leave the house for work. And now the kids have to leave the house and go off to school. And so this whole idea of work out of the home became the norm. It became very common. But you know, today, the internet, the cost of a brick-and-mortar facility, uh, and other reasons have, have, have sort of shifted the emphasis back to our roots. People, people are more and more working from home. In fact, it's very common to find people who work from home. I like, uh, I like telling a joke. Before I went into the ministry, it's not really a joke, but before I went in the ministry, I, I had an office, and they had a telecommute. That was the term, right? Work from home. And it was great because it was like a day off, right? And, and that's really what, what it boils down to. Most people I know that telecommute, I always call them, and they always seem to be free on the day that they're telecommuting. But the, the, in, at least in principle, we're trying to work from home more, more often nowadays. Let's uh, go to God in prayer before we get into our message and uh, study out uh, the, the elephant that's found in, in the home office. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We ask that your spirit be with us and bless us as we study your word and help us to see the truths that are there that you want us to see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, for those of you that don't know, we have this series, The Elephant Room, we've basically been doing a, a chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Daniel. One of the greatest books. I mean, all the books in the Bible are great, but Daniel's a fun one to read. And, uh, and, and we saw that in Daniel chapter 1, he would take, he'd been taken into captivity uh, into Babylon. He was probably a teenager. And there he was sort of force-fed everything Babylonian. That was the idea of the pop culture. But, but Daniel, in all of his wisdom that, had been, that really had been given him by God, was able to, tell, was able to decide for you know, uh, what part of the culture 
you know, he, he could live with and what part of the culture he couldn't. And for him, it was the food laws. It was the food issue. And so, so Daniel refused certain things that the Babylonians ate, and God blessed him because that was what was important to Daniel, and that was what was important to God. That was the only thing that really would have violated his relationship with God. All the other stuff, changing his name, studying everything about Babylon, you know, that's just information. It doesn't necessarily change Daniel on the inside, but but the food laws would have affected his personal faith, his personal walk with God. So he, he stood his ground on that and, and was able to decipher what part of the pop culture to fight with and to resist and what part was just, you know, hey, I'm not going to fight about everything, right? In chapter 2, we went into the bedroom and, and we saw that there is where we dream. Nebuchadnezzar had this amazing dream. And he wanted this dream interpreted, but, but he was unable to get it interpreted. And so, uh, you know, in that process of trying to find someone who could interpret the dream for him, he came across Daniel, who had been taken captive into Babylon, out of the, the land of Egypt, I mean Israel. And only Daniel could actually interpret the dream. And there we see that there is a difference between faith. Some faiths are not effective. They just don't have the validity. Daniel's faith was very a great prayer meeting with, his, with other friends of his who were taken into captivity with him. God revealed to him the dream showing that, that at least the God of Daniel is greater than the other faiths that were in existence at the time. So we're going to pick up the story there because I ended without ever explaining the dream to you. We never actually read what the dream was. We only, we only talked about the fact that Daniel actually knew it and could interpret it. So now we're going to go second part of chapter 2, and we're going to find out what the dream was. Verse 29. Daniel chapter 2, you can look on your phone if you have an app or if you have a Bible with you. I put only part of the, the scripture in the, in the handout because uh, there was not enough room for the whole scripture. So, verse 29, as your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. So, that's the backstory. Daniel knew the dream. It was revealed to him by God. And, and so, Daniel has an audience with King Nebuchadnezzar and is now going to tell him a dream. And he starts off by saying, look, when you went to bed, I know you had a lot on your mind. You were thinking about a lot of things. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had just recently become the king of Babylon. His father was the king before him. He died. Nebuchadnezzar had to, had to uh, take, fill some big shoes. Babylon had become the greatest kingdom on earth at the time. It doesn't mean it was the only kingdom. There were kingdoms in other parts of the world, South America and you know, Africa and China and Asia, places like that. But but this was the greatest kingdom in the world at the time, and specifically, it was the, the king, kingdom in the world at the time that had any relationship to Israel. Whenever you read the Bible, especially the older documents, the Old Testament, we like to call it, it really is the story of the people of Israel, and, and, and it really only addresses people and kingdoms and nations that affected Israel. That's why we don't read about the Incans or the Chinese dynasties in the Bible because they had no direct relationship on the people of Israel. The Bible is the story of the people of Israel. So Nebuchadnezzar, being king of Babylon, certainly had a lot of influence over the people of Israel. He had just recently conquered them. And to give you an idea about Israel, it wasn't really that powerful of a nation at the time. It, it at one point was really powerful, but it, it had really fallen on hard times. And Nebuchadnezzar really only conquered it because it was on his way to another kingdom that he was trying to conquer. So he, he just sort of took them along the way. So Daniel is able to interpret. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, with all this on his mind, goes to bed and he has this dream. And now here's the dream. 
This is significant because Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell anybody what the dream was. He wanted his wise men to interpret it without knowing what it was. That was the only way he could verify if the, their interpretation was accurate. He had to have some sort of independent way. How can I trust what you say? If I tell you the dream, you can make up anything. But if I don't tell you the dream and you tell me the dream, now you've got my attention. Last week, we, we talked about four things that, you know, four tests to, to know if, if a dream or a vision that God gives is from God. And the first one was that they're not normative. This is important. I just want to remind you. If you think you've been having visions and dreams from God, the first thing is not to assume they're from God because it's not normal in human history that people got dreams and visions. God didn't normally communicate God alive or where there was no written revelation. There was no Bible present. They were in a completely foreign land. Well, Nebuchadnezzar certainly fits that description. He was in a foreign land, had no real knowledge of anything that had been formally written about the God of Israel. Very unusual, but God gave Nebuchadnezzar a message in a dream. The second thing we got to remember is not everyone got dreams. Not everyone got messages from God. Now, we all dream, but the vast majority of our dreams aren't even remembered, let alone significant. They had just conquered Podunk, Israel. They had a big influence over the future of the people of Israel. So he was a special candidate for a special revelation from God. Thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that said, steal from the rich and give to the poor. Well, that would be stealing. Whether it's rich to the poor or poor to the rich, it doesn't matter. It's stealing. It's a sin. It wouldn't be con- it, it's, it's in conflict with the rest of the teachings of God. Now, as we get into the dream, we're going to see that the dream really, you're going to learn that there's no real conflict here, uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll explore that more. And then lastly, the dream has to come true. Most dreams are prophetic in nature when they're given from God to a person. And, and one of the best ways to verify a dream is, did it happen? Did it come true? And again, we're going to talk more about that uh, in a minute. But just remember those things in the background. They're very, very important so that we, we can really trust whether this dream was given from God. So let's read the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that God revealed to Daniel. Verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor. In the in, in, uh, like chaff on the flesh, like chaff on the on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And this was the dream. And now. We will interpret it to the king. So Daniel has met the first requirement here of Nebuchadnezzar. He has told Nebuchadnezzar the dream. Right off the bat, pretty miraculous event to begin with. And in this dream, he, he, sees, he, he says that what Nebuchadnezzar saw was a statue of, of various precious metals, and then the feet were mixed with iron and clay. And, and it was an amazing statue. And while Nebuchadnezzar stared at it in awe, a big stone that seemed to come from somewhere other than the earth, it was not made by human hands, hit the statue in the feet and completely destroyed it, turning it to dust, and it was blown away. And then that rock swole into a giant mountain. Now, that was the dream. And uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar, I, I would imagine, was pretty amazed by this dream. It was clear from, from last week that when he woke up, he knew something special had happened, that this dream meant something. Now, before we interpret the dream, we got to pause because whenever we, we read the Bible or whenever we look at God's word, we've got to understand what it meant to the people at the time that it was written. I feel like a broken record on this, but I cannot repeat this enough. In order to properly understand the Bible, an important principle of good biblical interpretation is you have to know what it meant at the time it was written. And to the people, of course, we always have to know the context. And by the way, if you're willing to take a little extra effort Maybe Google a passage of the Bible, and you can Google, you know, Daniel 2 and just type Daniel 2 commentary, and you'll get all kinds of commentaries, and you can take some time and glance through them, and you'll be able to piece together the context. May not all, everyone may not all be totally right, but when you, when you piece a few together, you'll get a general sense of what was going on, the historical situation, the singing and the setting and all that. It's not that hard. You can buy a commentary at the store. You know, scholars have put commentaries together where they, they basically give you the, the breakdown of what was happening in any given path, a little bit of the explanation. My point is this. When you do that, when you take the extra step and understand the Bible in its context, it will come read the Bible and they're looking for a meaning right away for themselves and they don't irrelevant and unimportant and insignificant in their life. But I, I, I promise you, if you would just invest a little extra time in your own personal, if you like to read the Bible, and if you haven't read the Bible, I would encourage you to try this, invest a little bit of your own time in learning a little bit about the, the context, don't put the cart before the horse, your Bible study will come alive. You will be excited by what you read and what you learn. So never settle for, for low-quality Bible knowledge. So before we interpret it and, and figure out what does this mean to us, we gotta, we got to know what, what did they think it meant. And the good news is, is the Bible tells us Daniel actually interprets the dream for us. So we'll pick that up in verse 37. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it. Even as you saw the iron mixed with clay, even as you saw the iron mixed with clay, as the toes are partly of iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a, a mixture and not remain unified any more than iron mixes with clay. So here's the first part of the interpretation. Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar that this statue represents a timeline. Beginning with Babylon, which was the, the head of gold, there would be each metal and material represents successive kingdoms. Now, little is said about the silver kingdom other than it would be inferior to the gold kingdom. And almost nothing is said about the, the bronze kingdom. But quite a bit is said about this fourth kingdom. Now, 
you know, it says that it would be as strong as iron, that it would crush the others, it would be divided, it would be a mixture of people and not unified. And, and it begs the question, why so much detail about the fourth kingdom? And I would put before us that because that fourth kingdom is the most relevant kingdom to the prophecy. So we'll, we'll get to that. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the, but the, the, the basic meaning of the dream, it, just as Daniel interpreted it for Nebuchadnezzar, otherworldly, something supernatural would happen. Now, I want to pause because along the way as we, as we do this study, it's important to kind of draw out little insights for ourselves here and there. And one of the insights that I want to, I want to draw out is this interaction between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar took place in his office. He's a Hebrew. He grew up in Israel. He spoke Hebrew. But when he was captured, he was indoctrinated in everything Babylon, including the Babylonian language, which was Aramaic. And Daniel specifically is, Daniel wanted everyone in the kingdom to know what had happened. You know, the big picture. There's an old saying, you know, you can't see the forest because of the trees. That's very true when it comes to God's will, his ways, his working in our lives. Sometimes it's very mysterious how he, how he, how he works in our lives. So strangers say things to us that, that uh, seem completely unrelated, but then they have some sort of meaning later, or interactions happen, and we wonder, wow, that was a weird connection, and we look back, and we see all these connections, and we go, wow, God worked in a mysterious way, but, but what God was ultimately working towards, his way wasn't all that mysterious. It was bro- it's been broadcast to people for generations. It was broadcast by Daniel to the entire Babylonian empire, the, the known world at the time, what God's ways were going to be for the next uh, period of the future in this one dream. It was not kept hidden. It was not kept secret. I say all this to tell you that the next time a book is written that has to do with the Bible code or a TV show comes on and it's Bible mysteries revealed, I want you to know that oftentimes these things are produced by people who don't read the Bible. And so what they do is they look for hidden meanings in everything. And they miss, they, they take our attention away from what has been said. The obvious point. We'll continue here. Verse 45. Daniel continues to interpret the dream. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock out of the mountain, not, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, Daniel, in, in, his, in his interpretation, sort of first starts with the statue and explains that. But then he, then he reveals and explains the meaning of the rock because it's very significant. And, he, and he, what he says is this rock represents the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. He says God's kingdom, when it comes, when it gets established, will be the greatest kingdom in the history of the world. It will replace all the other kingdoms, and it will endure forever. Now, in his vision, this rock will come during the time, the reign of the fourth empire, the empire of clay and iron. Now, this brings us to the meaning 
of the dream. Thus we have it. We get it. We, we see it. There's going to be three successive empires in the time of the fourth empire. A rock will be established that represents the kingdom of God, and it will destroy and crush and conquer all other kingdoms for eternity. That's the meaning. That's, I can't really add. I can't elaborate. That's what he told Nebuchadnezzar. That's the meaning. But it also talks about, it also brings us to the elephant in Nebuchadnezzar's office. And that elephant was that earthly gain will not last. Right? Daniel's basically told Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will go away. It will be, it will be usurped or, or replaced with another one and then another one, another one, and then God's going to replace them all. Earthly gain does not last. You think about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's just new to the throne. What's on his mind? Well, he, he wants to protect his kingdom. But what he doesn't understand is his kingdom wasn't going to protect him. It wasn't going to last into eternity. And so we see this, this, this elephant that we don't like to talk about. Nor did Nebuchadnezzar. It's the, and it's this, it's this idea of the futility of man working for man. There's no end in that. There's no future in that. There's no outcome in that. When we work for man, ourselves, or another person, there is no longevity in that. It does nothing to protect us. Now, we all have to have jobs, and we're not talking about paying our bills, etc. But we're talking about big picture items here, big concepts. What is our ultimate end game in life? Are we working for ourselves or for someone else? Or are we working for someone else, you know, something else, something greater than us? I wish I could go back in time and, and remind myself of this again and again and again because too many times in my life I've made decisions, I've invested in certain things, relationships or, or ideas or whatever, and, and at the end of the day they, they really didn't do anything to make me better or protect me or get me further any further down the road than anyone else. And if I could go back in time, I think I would make different choices in life. I would invest in something bigger, something better, something greater than man. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel on a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, Daniel's, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were his three friends taken into captivity with him, as administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel's revealing of the dream and Daniel's interpretation of the dream is to fall prostrate before Daniel and to honor him, and to honor his God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't come, he didn't become a believer here. We're going to, we'll learn more about Nebuchadnezzar as we continue our going from different room to room. He didn't become a believer, but, but certainly Nebuchadnezzar believed the interpretation to be true. And that's what we're seeing here. He's acknowledging, wow, you nailed it. You figured out not only the dream, but also what you said. Man, that makes a whole lot of sense. It must be true. But, but here's the question for you and I. Was it? Was Daniel's interpretation of the dream true? Well, we know what it meant to Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and Daniel at the time that it was given. We, we, we got their interpretation. There would be Babylon and then three other kingdoms, and then God would do something amazing in the time of the fourth kingdom. We know that that would be true, and that thing would be the kingdom that matters and lasts forever. We know that that's how they understood it, but, 
But how do we understand it? How can we take this dream that a king had in 605 or 603 BC that was recorded? Is there, a, is there a way for us in our day and age to verify whether this dream was true or not based on what we know historically and biblically? Remember what I said, when you know a dream is true, it can't contradict the Bible and it has to come true. So can we, in the future, compared to Daniel, can we look back through time and identify if this dream was accurate or not? And the answer to that question is yes, we can. As a matter of fact, Daniel is one of the most hotly contested books in all the Bible. Scholars reject it outright. And the scariest thing is we're talking about religious biblical scholars. They reject the book of Daniel outright. They believe it was not written in 605 B.C. when Daniel lived, when Daniel claimed it was written. They believe it was written much later, probably around 150 B.C., four or five hundred years later. And the reason why they believe that is because everything in the prophecy came true. And so they just flatly reject that there was any possible way for... Now, they try to be more professional than that, right? They try to be more, more uh, uh, highfalutin. Is that a word? Highfalutin? They, they try to be more, you know, they try to be more snobby than that. They pick on details. They go, well, you know, when you read Daniel, he says in the, in the first chapter, in the third century, uh, or in the third year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but when you compare Daniel to Jeremiah, Dan, Jeremiah says it happened in the fourth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. See, there's obviously a conflict. Daniel can't be trusted. Well, any, any basic student who, who studies a little bit of history can tell you something really simple. The way the Hebrews uh, reckoned time was different than the way the, palace, the, the people in Palestine, I mean, the, the people in Babylon reckoned time. And so for a Jew, uh, you became king when, when you were officially coronated king. So Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, other way around. When you were a Jew, you became king when you got conquered. Nebuchadnezzar walked in and said, oh, that's the king. He conquered us. But in, in, in the other reckoning, they didn't acknowledge the guy a king until he was coronated on the throne. And so, yes, from one perspective, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar was king for three years. In the other perspective, it looks like he was king for four years because of the way they reckoned the start of, the, of, the, of his reign. Easy to clear up. So that, that criticism can't, doesn't hold water in trying to tear down the book of Daniel. But there's two others that they like to talk about. They like, they like to talk about a guy named Belshazzar. Daniel's name was Belshazzar, with a T. This was Belshazzar. He was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And according to Daniel, he was the king when Babylon fell, when it was conquered. Daniel actually lived in Babylon from the time that it started to the time that it came to an end, about 70 years. He saw its, 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 its rising to the greatest empire, and he saw it fall. And, and he tells us that Belshazzar was the, the king at the time that Babylon fell. But, you know, historical records don't support that. All the historical records that we've uncovered say that Nabonidus was king. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar until the 1800s when archaeologists, there was a a renewed interest in archaeology, and and people went to uh, Babylon to unearth things, and they found something called the Nabonidus Chronicle, which tells us that Belshazzar was king when Babylon fell. There's another thing that the, the, the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle tells us which is interesting, and, and that has to do with a man named Darius the Mede. Daniel tells us 
that Babylon was, in, was taken by a guy named Darius the Mede. But again, there's no record of Darius the Mede. We have no historical record of him. So they've debated, well, Daniel can't be true. There's no evidence of this. We can't trust it. The problem is, is in the Nabonidus Chronicle, it says specifically that Babylon was taken by one of, by, by a specific general. It wasn't taken by the king of Persia. It was taken by one of his generals. And he actually ruled Babylon for about a month or two months before he died. And then the king of Persia entered the city and, 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 and took control of it from there on out. Now, the, the Nabuchodonosor Chronicle doesn't tell us specifically that his name was Darius the Mede, but it leaves the door open that very possibly that was Darius the Mede, that the general who took the city was Darius. And Daniel's letting us know that, but he only lived about a couple months. He died suddenly while he was, in, while he was uh, uh, holding the city. And it wasn't until the, the, the actual king of Persia came in and Nidus and, uh, Chronicle that was found in the 1800s. He would have known the future. 150 AD, and it was afterwards, AD, was when the Nabuchodonosor Chronicle was discovered. So how do you explain Daniel knowing about Darius the Mede and Daniel knowing in, in, in 1800s still have a problem? He still knew the future. So their supposed argument doesn't hold water, and it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't defend their argument that Daniel is inauthentic. In fact, it actually helps the argument that maybe it was authentic. Maybe it's more accurate than we think. Because as we uncover more archaeology, the more... Most, the majority of people who doubt Daniel as being authentic are religious people. They're scholars in, in, in Old Testament, in the Lutheran church or in, the, in, in some other church, right? Of all people, aren't they the ones that are supposed to believe the Bible? I mean, I, I appreciate a good debate. I appreciate a good argument. I appreciate some evidence being brought forward. Hey, we can talk about that. But, but shouldn't you, as a believer, start with the assumption that some of it's more plain? You know, we can search them out. And I find oftentimes when I have doubts and we search it out, we find out that the doubts actually lead to evidence that supports what I, what I started with. So we should never be ashamed of trusting God at his word. We should never be ashamed of taking God at his word. It's more reliable than, than people give, give, uh, give it credit. So let's talk about what we know in history. Let's, let's interpret this dream now from what we know. We know that Babylon existed, uh, was, it was the dominant empire between the years of about 605 to 539 B.C. And it was overthrown in a bloodless battle, actually. They just marched in and took the city by the Medo-Persian Empire. It's called that because the Medes had allied themselves with Babylon while Babylon was the empire, but they, they switched sides as they saw the Persians rising up in dominance and, and King Cyrus Persians. And so we call it the Medo-Persian Empire. It's interesting that that empire was described as the silver empire that went from basically the neck to the chest and included two arms. Notice it was the Medo-Persian Empire. It had two sides to it. It had two branches. And so we, we, we have an interesting, it's, it's just interesting insight there. It was also considered a little bit less, in, in, it was considered inferior to the, to the Babylonian Empire. What's interesting about that is in, under the Medo-Persian rule, the, the, empire, the emperor or the king, King Cyrus, he had, so his power was a little less, it was a little inferior to the power that Nebuchadnezzar yielded by being king of Babylon. He just had all authority. Nobody argued with him. 
He didn't have to debate things. So we have Nebuchadnezzar is the gold. Daniel tells us that. And that kingdom was over. And they, they reigned by the Greek empire. Remember Alexander the Great? We talk about him in high school history. Did you know Alexander Great conquered the world before he was 32? What have you done? That's all I think about. Fanny Crosby wrote 8,000 hymnals, and I turned around and said, what have you done? Bronze shields, bronze weapons. You know what they were known for? Bronze weapons. Bronze shields, bronze weapons. They were also Epicureans. They loved to eat. Really interesting. Stomach and the upper thighs. They were also lovers of pleasure. In 168 AD, the Greeks fell to the Romans. The Romans, who loved to build roads and loved to march, two legs, who conquered every other kingdom. I mean, they just decimated the world. They crushed, brutal, brutal, brutal empire that just, just, just destroyed the known world. The body, the le- I mean, the legs were, the, were, were, were iron mixed with clay. You know, the Roman Empire was a very divided Romans. The Greeks tried to make everybody Greek. It's called Hellenization. When they conquered a territory, then they made you learn Greek, and they wanted you to be Greek. The Romans didn't do that. They conquered a territory, and they just said, pay our taxes. We don't care what you do. So as long as you don't cause any problems, and you pay the taxes, you can do whatever you want. You can be your, who you want to be. It was a divided kingdom. So five BC, having so much relationship to what we know had occurred in history, beginning in 605 BC and going all the way into the Roman era, which ultimately ended somewhere in 400 AD. The Roman Empire lasted longer than all of them. It was the legs, the longest part of the statue. And Daniel said that it was during that Roman Empire when a rock made by God was thrown at it, crushed the legs, and destroyed all of the empires that came before and any that would come in the future. So the question is, is, well, what was that rock? What was the meaning of the rock? What, what could that be? I mean, when we look back in history, do we have any evidence of a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, that came and destroyed all the kingdoms before it and dominates the world today? Do we have any evidence of that? Is there a country of God somewhere? Do you have a passport, and when you visit it, it says God? You know, I, I visited God's country. You know, we don't have one. There is no earthly territory on, is, the, the, is the king. And so because of that, a lot of people have, have read this prophecy and tried to figure it out. Well, well, they're the time of the Roman Empire, because they believe that the rock will hit during the Roman Empire. And so what they do is then they began to think about the feet, and even the ten emperors, they try to find meaning and, and what they do, in essence, is they try to make these feet really long, like clown feet. <laughs> because there is no kingdom of God today. Which means that the, the, the statue covered from 605 to about one, or like 2,000 years of human history, when the, the whole statue itself was only about 600. So the question is, well, what is in this, in this statue? Well, what is the meaning? Is Jesus... So let's go there. Turn over to Matthew, chapter 16. Now, Jesus came to this earth 
somewhere around his during his time on earth when he was active in his ministry he talked about the kingdom of god an awful lot if you go back and just do a word search in the gospels he talks about the kingdom of god more than 50 times that's recorded and he says things like the kingdom is near the kingdom is within you the kingdom will come with power he talks about all these things he gives us all kinds of insights into the kingdom and what it would be like. And he says it would be, it, the kingdom is so valuable that if you, if, if, if it would be like a losing a coin, uh, um, finding a treasure in a field, something that you got to search for. On and on and on, he talks about the kingdom. Many times in many w- different ways. But on one occasion, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read verses 13 to 20. He says this. Say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, uh, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you uh, lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So Jesus has this interaction with his close followers, and he asks them, who do you guys think I am? And it was Peter, who says, well, I think you're the Messiah. Now, that's a very loaded word. The Messiah represented the Son of God, uh, the, the, the person who God would send, who would be God himself, and who would be the king of God's kingdom, and who would, who would restore the kingdom of God's kingdom to the earth. Remember, in Jewish history, at one point, they did have a kingdom of God. It was called the nation of Israel, way back when in, in time before Babylon destroyed it. And it was believed that there, that territory, that plot of land was God's kingdom. You could actually travel to it and visit it and leave it. And so Peter said, Jesus, I think you're actually the new king. You're the king. And it was cut out of a mountain by hands not of man. Church, equating the church and the kingdom is basically the same thing. But the rock is really the question here. It's really the key to understanding this passage. The the leader of the church and the first apostle, and yeah, 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 Peter doesn't mean that. Peter means rocky or pebble. He called him rocky. I like it because he was Rocky Johnson, son of Jonah, right? Rocky Johnson. You're Rocky Johnson. But he said, on this rock. And what he was referring to was he was referring to Peter's statement, you are the Messiah. It was on that belief that Jesus would build his church, his kingdom. And so what Jesus is telling us during the the Iron Empire and, and, and struck the earth during the time of the Iron Empire was actually the belief in Jesus Christ, in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. That's the rock that Daniel talked about some 600 years ago, before the time of that rock, the belief in Jesus as Christ, is the beginning. It's the start of the church. And the church is compared to the kingdom of God on earth. Now, it's not a territory There is no country called church. You can't go visit it. There's no passport. Because it's not based on territory. 
It's based on belief. Now, what's interesting is that rock grows to become the greatest kingdom in the history of the world, and it will endure forever. It's the one kingdom that will outlast all others. It's the one kingdom that we should all be working towards because it's the only kingdom that's going to protect us. All other human endeavors, all other human kingdoms are going to fail. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to fall. But that kingdom is going to itself endure forever. Now, this brings us to the elephant for us. Here it is. Ready? I thought about this one. You're going to like this phrase. I came up with it all by myself. The church is kind of a big deal. It really is. It's kind of a big deal. Daniel saw it 600 years, some odd years before it came, and he saw it as a rock that was shaped by God, and it was thrown into human history. And it destroyed, it conquered, it defeated all other human kingdoms, and it itself has grown into a mountain that is far and greater than any earthly kingdom ever has been or will be. It's kind of a big deal. And you don't become a part of it because you were born as a citizen physically into it, into the territory. You become a part of it because of your faith that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That's where it started. Right at that point. And you know, ever since Peter made that confession of faith, countless people throughout human history have made the same confession of faith. Just a few years later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter would back into existence as a result of Jesus Christ, got into the tens of thousands during the Roman Empire. Until the point that the Roman emperor in, in the 300... And if you were to add up from that time to now, the number of people who have claimed Jesus as their Lord, we're not going to get into the details of what were they, were they perfect or, you know, we're not going to get into that. Just people who claimed him as their king absolutely dominated human history. Even to today. In terms of that? Or is church just something that you go to? I, you know, we know I got to go, we go, it's important. But do you really know its importance? And does your life and your life choices reflect the value that you put on the church, the kingdom of God? I think we could all grow in this. I know I can. I think we all need some of this in our lives. We all need some more church in our lives, some more kingdom of God in us. But so do the people all around us. And I look around the room, and, and guys, there's very few people with us today. What does that tell you and me? It tells you and me that we haven't quite prioritized. Tell you, I don't have a program, 10-step ways to, you know, my, Joe's three steps to making kingdom first in your life, and, and there's two-day follow-ups. I don't, I don't have that program. It's really something that you've got to make a decision. You've got to decide for yourself to do. But it's...
what your kids grow up to do and think and believe, what the people you contact with, what they do and think, it will affect you if you would put the church back in its proper place in your life, the importance of it. Jesus said on one occasion, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. For Jesus, it was in sign, this is how you sign priority, it was priority. Jesus said, put the kingdom first. We got to make it our priority. If we want to walk out of here and we want this message to mean something to you and I, we got to walk out of here with a new, renewed attitude towards the kingdom of God, towards the church, and what it means to us and what it needs to mean to the people around us. And, and, and if we do that, it will be reflected on Sunday morning when we come together to worship. It will be unmistakable. Seek first the kingdom. So I started off telling my dad's other favorite joke about cemeteries, you know, and why they have a fence around them that people die to get in. Maybe we ought to die to get into the kingdom of God, right? Maybe we ought to start thinking like that, that that's how important the kingdom of God is to us. We're just going to, we're just dying to get in. And if we have that, I think the people around us will feel that and it will become infectious because it really is the greatest kingdom in the history of the world and nothing is more important than being a part of it. So at this time, we're going to prepare ourselves to take communion. part of your great kingdom for every one of us who went to the cross to die for us. That